amazing. When I was their age, I was still trying to not slide around on my knees and put holes in my pants, but they're over there like playing so amazingly. Um, well, I do not have a lot of time, so I'm just kind of going to jump straight into my icebreakers. My fingers were crossed, you know, when I heard Lamar up here telling jokes, because I think all Baptists pull from the same exact website for these jokes. So, <laughs> But luckily, he didn't tell any of mine, so I'll just jump straight into that. Uh, so a child asked his father, how were people born? So his father said Adam and Eve had children, then their children became adults and had more children, and so on. The child then went to his mother and asked her the same question, and she told him, we were monkeys, then we evolved to become like we are now. The child ran back to his father and said, you lied to me. His father replied, no, your mom was talking about her side of the family. <laughs> so... Now we have a teacher and her students. Uh, the teacher says, Vincent, if you had one dollar and you asked your father for another, how many dollars would you have? Vincent replied, one dollar. The teacher said, you don't know your arithmetic, but Vincent replied, you don't know my father. <laughs> and then last, uh, late one night, a burglar broke into a house, and while he was sneaking around, he heard a voice say, Jesus is watching you. He looked around and saw nothing. He kept on creeping and again heard, Jesus is watching you. In a dark corner, he saw a cage with a parrot inside. The burglar crept up and asked the parrot, Was it you who said Jesus is watching me? The parrot replied, Yes. Relieved, the burglar asked, What is your name? The parrot, sa the parrot said, Clarence. The burglar said, That's a stupid name for a parrot. What idiot named you Clarence? The parrot answered, The same idiot that named the Rottweiler Jesus. <laughs> so, I had, to, I had to throw in some icebreakers there because, uh, you know, I was a little nervous about what I was speaking about this morning. If you go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19. Um, there was, when Lamar first approached me and asked if I would like to speak um, at this uh, for the potluck, I was like, oh, sure. And I was like, there's a, you know, a few different things I've, I've wanted to speak about. And, uh, well, you know, the, the Lord began to speak to me. And he's like, well, yeah, I understand you want to speak about those things, but there's something else I want you to speak about. And uh, so I, I wrote out what I felt the Lord was leading me to, uh, uh, to preach this evening, and then uh, I wrote it all out, and I looked at it, and I was like, Lord, I don't want to preach this. <laughs> and I was like, I mean, I'll type it out and see maybe if it looks a little bit better. Uh, so I started typing it out, and I was like, man, Lord, I really don't want to preach this. Um, it's, uh, I think, a delicate topic, and it's something for someone beyond me that's more qualified than I am. Um, but I just kind of wanted to share... Uh, my heart tonight what the Lord's laid on here. Um, so today what I wanted to talk about was uh, it's just a topic of, the, of depression and grief and because depression it's a real problem that's only recently kind of received worldwide recognition you know if you go back even 50 years ago it would have been a rare exception for someone to talk about it. Depression was just something that happened to you know the, the outlier the one in a million like it wasn't something really talked about um, but it was something that was there just kind of under the surface. And, and a quick kind of working definition you can use with it is that depression is a mood disorder that causes a persistent feeling of sadness and loss of interest. It affects how you think, feel, and behave. And you may experience trouble doing normal day-to-day -day activities. And sometimes you may even feel as if life isn't worth living. Uh, some statistics I pulled from the World Health Organization here that says worldwide uh, since 2017, more than 300 million people have been diagnosed with depression. And uh, 800,000 people, uh, two-thirds of which are directly attributed to suicide, I mean to depression, commit suicide every year. And it's the second leading cause of death in 18 to 29-year-olds. 
Um, in our movement, in the, in the Christianity movement, it's largely been a, a battle to have these issues brought up because it's always been the, the viewpoint that mental health issues are not something Christians experience. That's something that the world has problems with and that, you know, we have God and we have Jesus inside of us, so it's not something we really have to uh, be concerned with talking about. But that focus has been changing as people have started to realize that it turns out after salvation we're still human beings of which I'm very thankful for because if I was supposed to be perfect after salvation, I think I missed whatever they were handing out that day. Um, but a survey of pastors and churches by Lifeway Research and Focus on the Family found the following statistics. 75% of pastors of the churches that they surveyed said that they know of at least one family member, friend, or congregant who has been diagnosed with clinical depression. 23% of the pastors surveyed indicated that they had or are battling with a mental illness related to depression personally. Of those 23%, 12% said that they were formally diagnosed. Of the churches surveyed, almost half said that the subject was rarely or never spoken of at church. Of the half that did say it was spoken of at church, only 33% of them said that the topic of depression was spoken of more than once a year. When interviewing those with diagnosed depression or mental illnesses related to depression, um, and, these is, and they wanted to specify because they took two different polls, uh, just kind of a general overview, but this is the people who attended church faithfully every you know, Sunday, Wednesday, and when the doors were open. Uh, they found that 78% of them said that what they wanted the most from their fellow members at their church was to be treated like a person and for those around them to just get to know them as a friend. When they asked, well, what's the number one thing your church could do for you, for those of you that are struggling with depression and mental illnesses and problems that you struggle with on a day-to-day -day basis, it was kind of heartbreaking to read, but 78% just said they just wanted to be treated like a person, and for their fellow church members just to treat them like a friend. Um, though the Bible never uses the word depression, it uses words like downcast and brokenhearted and troubled and miserable, despairing, mourning, and many others to show people who experience deep mental and emotional anguish. Many biblical characters like David, Elijah, Jonah, Job, Jeremiah, and Solomon all experienced depression. For some, it was only for a season, while for others, it was a lifelong struggle. Um, today, I want to focus on Elijah, and I want to see what God did in response to Elijah being in the depths of despair, um, because there's a lot of questions, and I, I'm not here to try and define what depression is. I'm not here to try and define the preferred method of treatment or, you know, you know medicine and different diagnosis and things. That, that's not what I'm here to do. I just want to share from the Bible what God did in response to someone who was at the absolute end of their rope, at the, at the depth of despair, and I just want to see what God did in response to that. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I, I come before you unworthy to be in this place that I am and unworthy of your grace and mercy and your care and kindness, but I, I have to beg for it today because I, I, I greatly need your help here this morning. And I don't want anything that's set up here to be from me, and I know I've expressed reluctance to you to speak on this topic and subject, especially in such a short time, but I do feel this is what you wanted me to speak on, so I just ask that you'll please uh, give me your spirit and have the spirit speak through me and uh, to take control and to let whoever this message is for, if it's just for me and I'm preaching to myself, or if it's for someone here, Lord, I just ask that you'll open up our ears and our hearts and uh, help us to listen from your word and to uh, 
for me not to say anything that would be contrary to your word or to try and pull anything out of your word by uh, stretching the truth, Lord, but to just present the word as it is here. I ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. So just a quick background where we find ourselves here in 1 Kings chapter 19. This is kind of where I'm just going to park and uh, speak from. Uh, So a quick background. Elijah had just experienced a monumental victory on Mount Carmel. and it's, it's, it's hard to describe for us just because we read the stories, I feel, so many times, and it kind of becomes, uh, yes, the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. But Elijah just got up on stage in front of the entire nation of Israel, and he put God to the test, and God did not come short. He uh, destroyed all the prophets of Baal. All these were Jezebel's personal prophets, um, destroyed all of them, and won a great victory for God that day. Um, and then after that, it just started raining after three years of drought, uh, a drought that Elijah experienced much personal trouble with. We see him having to hide out of the brook Cherith and spending time with the widow, and God always took care of him, but it, it never said that Elijah was staying in a five-star resort or he was having a life of leisure and ease. So this, this drought was affecting him just as much as everyone else um, that was there. But it finally started raining, and, and all these great things happened. And in the midst of all this, Jezebel in ancient Hebrew said, you're going to die to Elijah. And Elijah, now he's alone and afraid because when Elijah was on Mount Carmel, there wasn't a bunch of other prophets who had his back. He didn't have a band of men like Gideon did. He didn't have an army. It was just Elijah up there with God, um, with the word of God, and he was speaking the truth. And so Elijah felt very alone and very afraid because Jezebel held the might of the entire nation behind her. And, and if she wanted him dead, he couldn't see what would stop uh, her from taking that out on him. So alone and afraid, we find him in verse number four where it says, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. So I just want us to, to see Elijah's come to the place where he is at his lowest. He has laid himself under a tree and he says, God, he said, I gave it all I got. Just let me die now. That's, that's where he's at. And if, if, you know, it doesn't, the Bible doesn't have to say a word like depression. For us to see Elijah's in the midst of a, a terrible, terrible battle with himself. He just won a great victory for the Lord. And it seems his only reward is to be hunted and pursued and driven out from everywhere he's known and loved. He's lived a lifetime of being uh, of hunted, but doing what's right for the Lord and still suffering for it anyways. And it's kind of, I, I, I could feel for Elijah when he thinks, now I've reached it, this great pinnacle victory moment, and everything's going to get better from here, only to find now it's worse than it's ever been, because Jezebel wants him directly dead. They didn't like him before, but now Jezebel wants him dead. And so seemingly, Elijah's defeated. He's wrung out. He's given it his all. He went, he went 18 rounds in the ring, and, you know, he took a real nasty blow there at the finish when he thought he was coming ahead. So I want us to look at how God responds to Elijah when he's at his lowest. Because I, I don't want to try and pull anything from here. I just want us to see what God did when Elijah is here at his lowest, when he has no one else to turn to in his mind. He's alone, afraid, he's beaten, he's downcast. He just wants to die. That's all he, He's asking God, God who he just watched, destroy all the prophets of Baal, bring down fire. He knows God is capable of taking his life in a snap. And he, he's asking God to please just let me go home. I'm tired and I'm beaten and I'm done. 
So let's look at how God responds to Elijah when he's at his lowest. Uh, first, let's see that God takes care of his physical needs. In verses 5 through 6, it says, as, in, as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake baking on the coals and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. You know, so often we get so fixated on parting our spiritual wisdom to others, our, our great spiritual truths to get them out of their, the midst of their pain and anguish, that we neglect the simple act of actually doing something to help those in pain. Because nothing speaks to a grieving heart quite like a pan of lasagna or a casserole or mowing their lawn or buying some groceries. It's a simple act that says, I am thinking about you and I love you and I understand you're going through something that I may not personally understand, but I know it's hurting you and I want to do something for you. It's just some small act of kindness that it's, it's to show them you actually care. Because we've lost the art of actually doing something for others instead of just mouthing platitudes and giving Hallmark card phrases at those in pain. It's not wrong to do those things, but words without deeds are meaningless. We so often see someone in pain and in anguish, and our first response is, man, I'll be praying for you. And then it's maybe a flip of the coin whether or not we pray for them or not. And I know I've been guilty of the exact same thing, so I'm not pointing fingers at anyone as much as myself to say, when I've looked someone in the face and seen that they're in pain and anguish and said, I'll be praying for you, and then, well, you know, I'm busy, i got to go do this, and i got to do that, and I have this going on at work, and I have to, you know, go to basketball practice after that. And there's all these things that just push it out of my head completely. And someone's in pain and anguish, and I couldn't even take five minutes out of my day to pray to Almighty God to do something about their situation and to help them out. And so the act of doing something and taking care of their physical needs when they're not able to do it themselves, when they're kind of in that low area where... They're just kind of defeated and laying there. It's our duty and responsibility. And so the first thing that God does when he sees Elijah in such despair that he isn't even taking care of himself is without even saying anything about what's happening right now, without even diving into the situation, without admonishing Elijah, without asking or expecting anything, he just takes care of Elijah and gives him something to eat. Uh, he takes care of his physical needs first because he, he knows he's got to eat to continue on and he'll need his strength. Um, the next thing that God does, um, and I, I won't spend a lot of time here, is he has Elijah get away from his daily life and find some place apart where he can commune with God. In verse 8 it says, And he arose and did eat and drink, and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. Um, so sometimes what a person who is suffering really needs is, is a place apart from others where they can get with God and hear what God has to say. So often when someone's in pain and suffering, I feel we want to interject ourselves into that. We want to put ourselves in the midst of their lives and fix their problems because we've forgotten we're not the solution to their problems. It's God. So when God's trying to help someone and deal with them, the last thing God wants from us is to stick our nose in his business. God's trying to deal with them and help them. So instead of interjecting themselves into your life and, and their lives and trying to fix their problems for them, we, we should respect the fact that, oh, God is trying to get a hold of them in their heart, and we need to let them be available for God to speak to them. We don't need to fill their ears with our mouths so much that they can't hear God. So next in verses 9 through 10, we see that God gently asked Elijah what is wrong. And he came thither into a cave and lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, throw down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. 
Now, I want you to notice that God asked Elijah what's wrong, and then God listens to Elijah when he's saying what's wrong. He doesn't come down on Elijah and say that he's ridiculous to feel this way or that his problems were made up. God was loving and kind to Elijah. Oftentimes, I fear we're too busy telling people how to fix their problems that we don't even know what their problems are. We see someone in suffering and anguish, and we say, you know what's wrong with you? You need to read this passage of scripture and say this prayer and all your problems are going to be fixed. Or, you know, you just need to go out and you just need to intermingle with the people of God and you just need to do this or that. And we're so busy telling them that this is what you need to do to fix your problem and this is what you need to do to fix your problem. But if you stop for a second, you don't even know what their problem is. You didn't even ask them. You just saw that they were down and you decided, you know what, this is what the problem is and I'm going to fix it. I'm going to ride in with my six shooter on my hip and I'm going to bring law to the West. I'm, you know, we all have this kind of cowboy mentality of fixing other people's problems. When God here, he knows what Elijah's problem is. He knows what's going on. He was there the whole time. But he asked him, hey, Elijah, what's going on? Like, why, why are you here in this place? Like, what's, what's happening? And Elijah tells him, and we can see later, um, we were not here yet in the, the, the story, but you can see later in the story that the things that was going on in Elijah's head, they weren't real. The, the problems in his head, they, they weren't actual. They, they was, the devil was lying to him and throwing uh, things into his face to confuse him. He was making him uh, feel alone and secluded. And we can see later that that wasn't true. But that's how Elijah felt, and it was a very real problem to him. Because Elijah felt, I'm, I'm it, God. I've done everything for you. I've done everything I possibly can. I've held nothing back, and I'm still I'm alone, and no one's here for me. I'm all by myself, and I feel like even you've abandoned me. And God doesn't stick his finger in Elijah's face and say, you're wrong. Who are you to dare question me? Who are you to feel this way? Like, all your problems are made up. This is dumb. Just shake it off and keep going. And no, he, he treated his response in a very real way. Because I want you to see next that what God does is he reminds Elijah of who he is. In verses 11 to 13 it says, And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind rent the mountains, and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? God was in that still small voice. He wasn't in the flashing obvious signs, but in that quiet yet all-pervasive voice that could be heard if Elijah would decide to listen. God showed Elijah that while I may not be hurling thunderbolts at your enemies, I'm still here and I'm still in command. When people are at their lowest, we need to comfort them physically, but also comfort them spiritually. Because a ravaged spirit and a soul that's in distress needs to be reminded that the Lord is still here, and he still cares. Because the devil will try to hide God from us, but God will always be where he has been, even if we can't see him. So it's not, God, Elijah feels alone in that there's no one else with him, and God shows him, I'm still here, Elijah. I'm right next to you. I haven't abandoned you. I promise you may not see my hand moving in, in just a mighty way for all of your problems, but that doesn't mean I'm not here waiting for you exactly where I've always been. So God asked Elijah again what is wrong, and I want you to see that Elijah gives the exact same answer in response in verse 14. I'm not going to read it for sake of time, but God doesn't rebuke Elijah for having the exact same answer. Because God knew that Elijah's problem wasn't something that would just go away in a snap of his fingers in one moment. 
Um, he, he knew that Elijah was, he was in a bad place and that he might be there for a little bit. But I want you to see what God did do next. Um, look at the next two things that God does. Uh, he got Elijah busy. In verses 15 through 16, it says, And the Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when thou comest, anoint Hazel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of uh, Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of uh, Shaphat of Abimelech, I can't really say that, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. Now, God didn't let Elijah stew in his grief. He got him up and moving. He didn't force him to immediately go and confront Ahab and Jezebel and walk into the throne room and, you know, make vast rolling proclamations. He didn't have Elijah just, hey, let's attack the big stuff, big guy. Let's get up, champ. Like, come on, it's time to get up and be right back at him. Like, let's charge straight into the battle. God started off Elijah with everything he's done. He started him off real small. He didn't start him off with anything big. He said, hey, let's just do the little things that you can do right now. I understand you're in a hard place. I understand you're in a bad time. I understand everything seems wrong and nothing seems right. But I, I just need you to take a little step forward and do a small thing. And so he just has him go and do some really kind of menial things for Elijah. It's just going here and talking to this person and anointing them and going here and talking to this person. Real small stuff in the grand scale of what Elijah has done. But it was so important just to get Elijah moving again, to get him off of that, this pit of despair in this place. He had spent this time kind of coming terms to his grief and his problems, but now it's time to get up and take a small step forward. Sometimes we fall down, but it's important when we pick him up to give him a, a little nudge, a little step forward. Not try and shove them straight back into the midst of the battle. Not trying to get them to do some great, huge thing, but just a little tiny thing that's going to keep them moving and get them moving forward again. So lastly, I want us to see that God reminds Elijah of a simple yet powerful truth. He reminded Elijah that he wasn't alone. In verse 18, it says, Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. So perhaps one of the biggest helps was reminding Elijah that he wasn't alone. Elijah had felt alone and abandoned, but God showed him otherwise. He told him that there are 7,000 others fighting just like you. They're scared and afraid, but they're in the fight with you. And what a comfort that had to be for Elijah. Because Satan seeks to blind and separate us, but God seeks to illuminate and bring us together. So what about us? Because we have hurt and shattered people among the church. And the question is, is, are we reaching out to help in any way we can? Are we concerned enough to ask what is wrong and listen to their answers? And do we remind those that are hurting of who God is instead of giving all of our solutions to their problems? And finally, are we making sure that those who are drowning in the midst of despair don't feel alone and forgotten? Are we treating them like people instead of like problems? Do we love them as friends, or are we treating them like outcasts? Like I said at the beginning, 78% of those suffering just want a friend. They just want someone to look at them and love them for them. And so the question is, as we as a church, we're supposed to be the body of Christ. We're supposed to be brothers and sisters. And so how often do we see someone suffering and we want to push them away because of their problems instead of when we should be bringing them close? And I'm not here to tell you it's easy. It's not easy helping hurting people. It's messy. Um, but when Jesus came to earth, that's all he did was help broken and hurting people. And that's exactly what he called us to do, was to wade into the mess and to help those, especially in the midst of us. We, we have no excuse for not helping those around us. 
Um, so I hope that was a, a help and a blessing to someone here today. And uh, let's just go ahead and I'll close in prayer and then I'll turn it over.